series, kind of taking big chunks of the book of Acts and exploring and, and witnessing as God is unveiling to us that God himself is a big God, that he is sovereign, that he is sovereignly in control of all things, and that he himself is a missionary, that he is the sent one who came to earth in Jesus as the person work of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died upon a cross, who was put into a borrowed tomb, and on the third day was resurrected to give us life and unite us back to our God. But in doing so, did not leave us in his ascension, but sent us the Holy Spirit, the power of God, the person of the Holy Spirit to be our comforter, to be our helper, and to empower us, as, as the book says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is that when the Holy Spirit comes, we will be empowered to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so the book of Acts was written by this guy named Luke, who also wrote the book of Luke. And this is the, the kind of second volume. They were kind of originally kind of one concept that this is the gospel. Gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did on the earth. And this is what Je Jesus' mission is continued to look like after his ascension. And so the book of Acts is a, a viewing of a 30-year span of what I would call, if you were here last week, you can listen to it. Um, my wife did a great job writing that sermon. But it was all about revival and praying for revival. And the book of Acts is peering into a 30-year revival taking place in the Middle East that spread throughout the known world. Why? Because, man, these people were completely convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were so convinced and so believed in this truth that they were willing to be thrown to the lions. They were willing to be ripped to shreds. They were willing for their children to be taken, for their husbands, their wives to be taken. They were willing to be stoned to death. And they were willing at all costs to propel the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost may be for them personally. So we've read about this guy named Peter who stood up and preached, and all of this stuff is taking place within the birth of the church in the book of Acts. We've learned about this terrorist, this jihadist named, named Saul of Tarsus who was persecuting Jesus and his church and coming against them, dragging them out in the middle of the street to have them imprisoned or murdered. And we saw the great conversion of this man named Saul, even so much that his name went from being known as great to being known as Paul, which means that he is small and humble. And so we've, we have seen this great partnering of the people of God as they're expanding this same message that God started with in Genesis chapter 1 that is continuing to go several thousand years later, and even for us, 2,000 years later from these moments as the gospel is unstoppable. Why? Because we serve an unstoppable God. And so we see over the course into chapter 15, um, that this man, as we left off last week, um, that Paul and his buddy uh, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, have been prayed up and sent out by the church to literally be on the front lines and in the trenches of ministry, taking that gospel message to whomever they come in contact with, 
teaching, preaching, planting churches, and have now traveled probably a circumference of up to 500 miles from the city of Jerusalem as Jesus not only saves the Jews, but as we saw in chapter 10, he is also saving the savage dogs to the Jews, the Gentiles. And so we're all lucky here. Can I get an amen from the Gentile crowd today? Amen. All right. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Welcome. You're in good company. We're thankful that Jesus has saved us as well and give testimony to this powerful, powerful section and statement and ultimately the work of Jesus. We see in the book of Acts that these are ordinary people used by an unstoppable God, a great and glorious God, to do the will and work of the ministry. And so since I am a a jack of all trades and a master of none, this is good news for a guy like me who's not very smart, but who can be used by God in faithfulness. And so since I know you, that's, that's good news for you too. All right, so When we look at this situation, to give you some context really quickly, Paul and Barnabas were planting churches. They're in Antioch. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is coming down on this place, and all of these Gentiles are being saved. But as we're going to read about today, there is now a disagreement in the church. Now, that sounds like a foreign policy, doesn't it? Right? If you've been around church long enough, you've probably been in a few church disagreements. In the one place where there should be unity of mind, as the Bible calls it, or, or be united in one accord, as the, body, or the, the Bible tells us, we see already, this is about, to give you a timeline here, about 16 or 17 years since Pentecost. All right? So Paul has been following Jesus now for several years, even from chapter 10 to where we are today. It's probably another span of five, six, seven years now. All right, so this has been taking place, and, and as we've discussed, is that a lot of times um, the enemy, sin, Satan, and death, seeks not to cause the church to explode, but wants to see the church implode from the inside with disagreements and really dumb stuff um, within the lives of believers. So we have to make war against those things. So here's what we're going to do. Acts chapter 15 uh, read along with me. Don't read out loud because I struggled to read and you're going to really confuse me. All right, so read to yourself. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through um, 5 is where we're going to start. It says this, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phionosia, something like that, and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had been doing with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise circumcise them um, and to order them to keep the laws of Moses. 
of Moses. All right, so go back with me to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see what makes a person a Jew is that God has decided that he is going to create a nation amongst the nations. And in the Old Testament, we can see, especially if you've been reading the Bible through a year, man, you can see that in the, New Te- or in the Old Testament, not only do we have 10 laws, but there are actually 613 of them. And then those laws were also expounded upon um, by the Pharisees, Sadducees, different rabbis and religious leaders to where it would become astronomical to think about all of the expectations that were placed on these people. Now, originally, God had put in laws and ritual laws in order to do something very specific. He wanted his people amongst all of those nations to look different, to sound different, and to ultimately to be a blessing to all of these people over there. He wanted it to be very, very clear. These are my people. They are different, and they are to be a blessing to you. Now, in setting apart, we see in the Old Testament that God established sort of two different realms when it comes to the law. We have a tendency to kind of lump it all together. But when you read through the Old Testament, you will see kind of two variations of the law. There's what we call the moral law. When you hear these sorts of terminology, this has to do with, with easier things for us to say. Like, hey, don't kill people. All right? That's a, that should be a moral truth for everyone. All right? Don't fall in love with another man's wife. That's a good rule. All right? Just to help you out a little bit. Don't steal stuff. All right? People get really ticked when you take their stuff. This is moral law. Think Ten Commandments. Okay? Moral truths that all of humanity should fall within. These are good, sound ways to live. Okay? But on the flip side of that, God also established with them, which eventually got blown out of proportion, um, what we call ritual or ceremonial laws. Okay, These were different than moral laws. These typically were very tangible things. Okay, For instance, circumcision. Now, I do not have a slide of that. Hopefully, we can all handle that this morning. But the idea of circumcision, um, that when you look in the covenants of the Old Testament, something was always cut. Whether it was an animal or whether it was a person. Covenants are always cut. Blood is usually always shown in the Old Testament, and we can see this in the cross as well, that blood is shed in a covenant. And it could be an animal it could be you. But God wanted to make it very, very clear that if you're one of his chosen elect people, that if you're a people, a Jewish person, a part of the remnant of God, this elect group of people, then there was going to be a physical sign in all of those males that, hey, this guy is a Jew. So you can cover up a lot of things with clothes, but you can't cover up circumcision. Okay? Um, that's a, a physical cutting and showing of this covenant with God. But there are other things as well, like um, don't eat shrimp. Praise God. I get to eat shrimp. Amen? Shrimp and bacon. All right? Bacon on shrimp. Bacon in general is, is God's 
It's manna, all right? So we, we see things like, two these ritual law, laws of you're not supposed to take your field and, and plant corn and soybeans in the same field. Also, um, things like fabric. You're not supposed to take cotton and polyester and weave those two things together. All right, so there are, again, moral laws that we should all follow, but there are also specific Jewish laws, ritual laws, that were also specific for those people. They were to be set apart. Imagine, um, yesterday, Laura and I were set up the last few days selling a bunch of my artwork and things um, at the 400-mile yard sale, which is a total, get, get some lemonade, come out next year, sit and watch, even if you don't sell anything. It's quite an experience. But Laura and I were even sitting there, and, and there's a lot of Amish people, Mennonites, that live out toward um, Auburn and that area, and they're coming by. Like, I sold last year, like, my entire childhood collection of baseball cards and basketball cards to an Amish guy. I'm still wondering what that guy's going to do with those. Like, he knows none of them, all right? It's not like he's got, Jebediah's got a Jordan jersey on underneath his shirt that his mama made him. I mean, like, what's he going to do with them? But you go out there, and immediately you go, there's Hezekiah, right? There's Ezra. There's Jebediah. Why? Because you can look at them and see they're set apart in the way that they look. I told Laura yesterday, I was like, man, I have a lot of respect for Mennonites and for Amish people. Because they don't deny, this is, this is who we are, this is what we believe, this is what we're into. We dress differently. If you talk to them, they talk differently. They live differently. And so God has a desire to do this among them as well. And so what the conflict is, is when we see this, is that these Jewish brothers and sisters who are believers in Jesus... They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that Jesus is the, the one, the anointed one, the one that was to come, the one that their forefathers have been proclaiming for thousands of years would come. These are Jewish believers. But they're showing up to church, and they're telling Gentiles who are now confessing in Jesus, hey, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Messiah. You need to be saved from your sins from Jesus and by Jesus. However, to be able to receive salvation and receive the rewards of Jesus' sacrificial life, you must first convert to Judaism because the Messiah is only for the Jews. And so next Sunday, when we show up for worship, all of you Gentiles who aren't Jewish first, you males especially, we're going to have a circumcision Sunday. That'd be fun, right? Baptism, celebration, circumcision Sunday. I mean, do you hold up a certificate for that? Uh, they put you on, on the web page, like, new members, Adam York circumcised. I mean, how do you promote that? Do you tell WBKO, come to our church on Sunday, all right? But that's, that's the conflict that's happening within this church. If, if you know anything about the Bible, I encourage you to go from today and read through the book of Galatians because this is the issue that's taking place in that entire book. And Paul will, I'm going to read some Galatians here in a little bit, but Paul talks about this entire thing. The whole thing centers around these Judaizers coming to the church in Galatians saying, hey, Jesus is cool, but you also got to do these things. You got to become a Jew first to receive the benefits. So you can imagine what is taking place? This conflict that's taking place. Now, my wife told me not to use this illustration, but I'm a geek, and so I'm going to use it. 
Fiddler on the Roof. How many of you guys are familiar with Fiddler on the Roof? All right, story of Fiddler on the Roof is there's this song inside of Fiddler on the Roof. I'll probably apologize. This will be edited or something later. In the, in the Fiddler on the Roof, there's this song. If you remember, it, raise your hand if you know anything about Fiddler on the Roof. All right, so you other five geeks will get this. The rest of you, Google it. All right, so um, if, when you know anything about Fiddler on the Roof, there's this song, and they keep t- saying over and over and over, blah, 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 tradition, but it's it's tradition. And the whole plot, real spoiler alert, um, on Fiddler of the Roof is this community of people that are wanting to hold on to their traditions and their rituals while all of their culture is changing around them. We, fa- we face those same battles. All right, when you go from singleness to being married, one of the biggest questions that a lot of young couples have to work through is, what do we do at Christmas? Right? This is our tradition. This is what we do. This, you know, we go to grandma's house at this time, then we go to daddy's house at this time. And if you come from split families, oh, God bless you, all right? You know what you learn to do? No, we're going to one place each day. There you go. I saved you a lot of trouble. All right, so, um, but you fight those issues. What do we do with our traditions? This is what we have always done. This is, we always go to grandma's house on Thanksgiving. We always do this, but now you've got extended and expanded family. So how do we change our traditions and events when a world is changing around us? You know, most divisions um, in churches today take place over rituals and traditions that aren't seen in Scripture. Right? Um, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church split, but typically those issues aren't of some moral issue. Typically, they're over a traditional issue. Somebody did something, the pastor did something, the church is heading in a direction that is different from your traditions. For instance, back in the night, it still happens in some churches, uh, but there for about 10 years during the church growth movement, that is about 1980 to 2000, let's say, where that was really promoted, there was, became something within the life of a lot of churches called the worship wars. And essentially what you're having, you were having all these people who wanted to sing hymns, and then DC Talk came along and screwed it up for everybody, right? So Stephen Curtis Chapman came on the scene, Amy Grant and her leather plant pants. I mean, that was really interesting at one point. If you know who Amy Grant, El Shaddai, all right? Uh, all these people started singing Christian songs, but they sounded like U2 or rock bands or, or whatever. And so imagine what happens in church. The young people, they want drums and electric guitars, and Sister Susie over here, whose mama bought the organ, still wants to hear the organ being played. And so it became this huge battle. I know of a church in my hometown that in the last several six months has split. They're saying it's a church plant. It's not a church plant. It's a church split. And essentially the underlying issue is still over music. Well, you don't want those drums. And the young people are like, we want those drums. Rock it out for Jesus, okay? So it's causing major conflict within the church. What do we do? These are our traditions. This is what we do. And it becomes extremely difficult. You know, the music is too loud. You know, we didn't, we didn't, Eric and I were talking earlier, we didn't sing a hymn, right? You got to sing a hymn. This is church. The doxology must be sang every Sunday at the end. Praise him. Amen. Let's go eat, all right? I mean, that's what you do because of our tradition. So this became such an issue within the church at Antioch that Paul and Barnabas, they're like, hey, we got to go to the mothership. 
We need to travel the 300 miles and go back to Jerusalem and hear what the big dogs have to say about this. We've got to hear from James, the brother of Jesus. We've got, to, we've got to hear from Peter. We need the church to decide on, do we add these things for a person to be saved? Yes, they must follow Jesus, but must they also do all of these ritual, ceremonial, religious activities? Now, a lot of people like to skip over the, this chapter because they, they don't understand the conflict here. Hopefully we've made that clear for you today because I think that this is extremely crucial because we've seen from this moment um, vectors and just different veins of, of Christianity that have gone the opposite direction than the decision that was made from what is known as the Jerusalem Council here. So the question is, so Jesus is Savior, but what do we need to do? What do I need to do? How, how do we help God? Yes, Jesus saves, but how do I get Jesus to save me? These are also known as what I'm calling them today as religious roadblocks. I did put a maze on purpose on the front of your eye, uh, on your, I said almost iPad, um, on your weekly today, because if you have ADD and you need something to do, that will give you something to do while I'm preaching today. Um, but in that, creating these idea uh, of these religious roadblocks within Christendom. What is a religious roadblock? Get this, take notes. Creating extra biblical barriers for yourself and others that hinder you or them from getting and living, living the gospel. I'll read again. It's really long. Creating extra biblical barriers, barriers for yourself and others that hinder you or them from getting or living the gospel. All right? So you take these two group of people, and you got Jewish believers, Gentile believers, very, very different cultures. It's like taking Amish and breaking Amish and taking them to Vegas all of a sudden. Two very different cultures, lifestyles, who now all ascend to believing in Jesus. So what do we do inside of the church, because this still happens even in this room, when you've got people with different worldviews, different thought processes, different ideas, different aspects, different ways of looking at life. So what do you do when Christians from these different ideas and mindsets begin to join together in community? What does that look like? Um, I've spent some time in Costa Rica. I've spent some time in Haiti and some other places as well. Those cultures are very different than ours. Specifically in Haiti and, and in Latin America, you know, that, those are very celebratory type of people. Okay? Their music is different. They're constantly dancing, celebrating, enjoying life, doing these sorts of things. It is a ingrained in part of their culture. What's interesting, though, is when you see a bunch of Americans go to those places, a lot of times you begin to see parts of their culture dissipate from their daily activities. Um, for instance, they dance everywhere else, but, but that's forbidden within the church. See, that, to me, that doesn't make much sense. It's who they are. Now, I'm not talking about dirty dancing, all right? I'm not talking about MTV late at night kind of dancing that we're seeing. 
But I'm just saying, simply saying there's a celebration that is ingrained in these people, but then a lot of times we Americanize them, taking and removing a cultural element from them that, that really makes them unauthentic to who God made them to be. Okay? And so it, it's, it's very important that when we, we see this, and we're hearing about this, that we're not talking about going against things that we see that the Scripture would have for us to do, but there are extra things that we need to be very careful of placing these barriers and these roadblocks on ourselves and on other people and these expectations when, when I don't think that God has an issue with them. Okay? Now, let's, let's keep going here. So here's what happened. Paul, Barnabas, they go back to Jerusalem. Verse 6, read along with me. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after um, there had been much debate, who stands up? Peter. Peter stands up. He stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples and neither our fathers nor we have been able to do? So you imagine this, in the early church, it's believed that James, the brother of Jesus, was probably the head guy of the church. His right-hand man, all right, his, his, his little Padawan here, uh, bad Star Wars reference, is, is, is Peter, and Peter's the real boisterous one. They put the calm guy up front, they let Peter kind of have his way, but, but Peter stands up and he says, hey guys, we can't do this. We can't put these ceremonies and these ritual laws and expect these Gentile believers to do this. This is not the gospel. This is not what Jesus would have. He, he stands up and he says, do you remember back when, when, when God came to me and said the gospel is going to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house? We didn't expect them to do all of these things. The same power that fell on us in Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10 is the same power and had the same fruit on these Gentile believers. I, I love it when he says there in verse 10, and by the way, our forefathers couldn't do this. Oh, and, and in case you're wondering, gentlemen, we can't do this. We stink at keeping all of these rituals. We stink at keeping all of these ceremonies. It's impossible for our forefathers to do it. It is impossible for us to do it. We can't do it. And so what does he do? Man, he preaches the gospel to a bunch of church people in verse 11 when he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It is all about the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. It is not about your works. It is not, not about your goodness or your righteous deeds. You cannot impress God by what you do and don't do. 
Peter reminds these church people, hey, it is not about circumcision. It is not about the clothes that we wear. It is not about the music style that we have a preference about. It it is not about how many steps we take on the Sabbath. We do not have to become a Jewish person to be saved. God saves whom God will save, and it is by the grace of and the mercy of God that he does that. And that wind blows on whomever it wills, whenever it wills to happen. Why? Because it is about the gospel. It is about Jesus. It is about him. So what takes place is James. Now, the brother of Jesus stands up in verse 12, and he says this, And all the assembly fell silent, revival quiet, in that moment. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related that signs and wonders Uh, God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from the old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles, uh, those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is uh, read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So, uh, good evidence that Jesus was resurrected is his brother James is the main pastor of the church. All right? Imagine showing up this week and all of a sudden your brother or sister is claiming to be the Messiah. That changes things. Ultimately, it changed James, the, the, the brother of Jesus, he began to worship Jesus as God. And he stands up in front of all of these brothers and sisters and he proclaims to them, God has always been promising that this is how he was going to do it. God's plan was always for the Gentiles to be brought into the fold. Even Jesus himself proclaims to many of the Pharisees at those different moments, there, there are sheep that are not yet a part of this pasture. But they will be brought into the fold of God. And then, what does he do there at the very end? He concludes, we cannot put these religious rituals and ceremonies on these people. Praise God, right? Aren't you glad of that today? It was impossible for our Christian history through the Jewish people to be able to do these things. I'm so glad that you didn't have to bring animals for Pastor Justin and I to sacrifice. All right? I don't think Bowling Green Christian Academy would enjoy the blood all over the place, to be quite honest. All right? I'm glad that, I don't know what this fabric of this church is is made of, but I'm thankful for it. Uh, One of the ritual things in, in laws was that the men, and you can see this in some Orthodox Jews even today, right? They'll be walking down the streets in New York, or you can see them on, uh, on television. They're Orthodox Jews, and the Bible says for you to grow out your sideburns for them. It's a ritual law, and so you see these big, long, curly cues coming off. I mean, could you imagine my big bald head and these curly cue 
curls coming out the side of it. I mean, I, I thank God, man. I'm so glad that I'm not saved, that you're not saved by our good works and deeds and religious activities, but we are saved by the grace of God because that's hope for me because I am terrible at being good. It is not my natural tendency. What goes on inside my mind is, is not naturally good. Anything that is good that is in there is a gift of the Holy Spirit that has been imputed to me through the person and work of Jesus upon the cross and in his resurrection. That is good news. Say good news. It's good news, but we forget that. We forget it. We forget that it's all about Jesus and what he has done. He concludes that we cannot put up these roadblocks for ourselves or for others. We must fight the drift. See, the drift is to always make it religious. Tim Keller defines religion as this. Religion is salvation through moral effort, while the gospel is salvation through the grace of God. See, our, our tendency, every one of us, even after becoming followers of Jesus, even after being shown and being lavished upon much grace and mercy from Jesus, our, it's like our next step is always uh, is suddenly to become extremely religious. Turn with me to the right, to the book of Galatians. Hold your spot there. If you're looking at one of our pew Bibles, it's on 972. But the book of Galatians... Paul write this, and I told you earlier, this is all about what's taking place here. Read this with me. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is, any, uh, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking the approval of man or of God. Or am I trying to please man? If, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What is Paul reminding them? They're reminding them of the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, you are saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus. Mission Church, you are saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus. Those who are far from God today, they're going to be saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus. Not some religious activity or practice or ceremony. You are not saved by your baptism. And there are... There, there are people who claim to be followers of Jesus that believe that, preach that in their churches, preach it from the pulpit. You are not saved by your baptism. You are saved by the working of the Holy Spirit through the person and work of Jesus Christ in your life. Should you be baptized? Yes, in response and obedience to what Jesus has done in your life. But it is not a guarantee of anything. Grace and mercy of Jesus is. Man, we are not saved by our works. We are saved, sanctified, sustained by the person and work of Jesus Christ. What does Peter call it back in Acts chapter 15? He calls this mentality the idea of placing a yoke of bondage on people. Now, we're far removed from this idea of having a yoke, but you take two oxen, you want to make sure that they're equally yoked, so you don't want to put like a, a cat and an elephant together. That, they don't work well together. So you put two equally 
sized yoke or oxen or cow or whatever you're using to both strong animals and you yoke them together with a wooden beam that you're able to control from the back. Peter tells these guys, man, when you're putting these religious practices and expectations and barriers and roadblocks on these people, you are placing a, a yoke of bondage and slavery upon them. And Jesus has come to set us free. Obviously, a lot of times we think more religious activity will breathe more growth, right? The very thing that we think is going to bring growth to us is actually can be a roadblock within us. Inside of your weekly today, I put a chart from Tim Keller's book. If you don't have this book, I would encourage you to get it called Center Church. And it's all about placing the gospel at the center of your church and life. And in that, he, he gives us this chart. We don't have time to go over it this morning. I tried to make it Bible size so that you could stick it in there. I would encourage you to read it all the time. I do want to read the first one, though, very easily. You have to begin, I have to begin to ask ourselves these questions. Are we going to be gospel-centered or are we religious? The first one, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. How many of you struggle with that? And I do. After reading again, these again this morning, man, I just put all my books down, my notes down for my sermon. I got down on the carpet on our floor, and I was like, God, and I, I'm such an a, approval of others seeking, even of God. Like, he can approve me any more than he can through the person and work of Jesus. But that's my tendency. What's gospel? I'm accepted, therefore I obey. There's a, a chasm, an infinite chasm between those two very ideas. Man, I encourage you this week to, to take that paper with you, to, to read over, not to lose it. If you do lose it, I'll send you another one. But to, to weekly and daily begin to evaluate your heart to say, okay, is this religious activity or is this gospel activity. Within the church, when these conflicts arise, if you've been around mission for very long, you you'll hear, have heard this and you'll continue to hear this, um, but within our church DNA, we try to focus on these two things. There are things that we call closed-handed issues. These are things that we see in Scripture. These are the moral law, but they're also gospel truths that we know beyond, as the old preachers used to say, beyond the shadow of a doubt. These things are true, such as God is the creator God, the, the Trinity is real, Jesus is the Messiah, the only way to be saved is through Jesus. These are closed-handed things. These are the sorts of things that you should die for in the sake of the gospel and for the proclamation of the gospel. Keep a tight fist on these things. These are things improper for you to fight over. But then there are millions of things within the church that are open-handed issue. And most churches don't split over biblical things. They split over open-handed issues. The color of carpet. See, I think that sounds dumb to split over. But churches do it. All right? Taking out the organ. Putting an organ in. What time is your worship service? Right? What Bible translation do you use? All of these things can be very opened 
handed issues. And most conflicts within the church don't look like two guys in an MMA cage fight. They look like two, um, you know, middle schoolers outside next to the flagpole, scared to death, slapping each other. It's a ridiculous scene, isn't it? And let me get you to get this. You don't get to determine, and I don't get to determine, what's closed-handed and what's open-handed. But every one of us fight to do that, don't we? These are my personal preferences. This is what I think should happen in the church, so it's, it's automatically closed-handed. They'll even say things like, oh, they think that this is closed-handed, we think that this is open-handed. The reality is we don't get to determine what's open-handed and closed-handed. God gets to determine what's in the closed hand. So you got to make sure that whatever you're willing to fight over, that you can see it in the Scripture. And that it's clear that this is what we can fight over. And this is stuff that we look silly fighting over. But it happens every day. That is our tendency. That is the drift that within us. You've heard it before. You, got, you can't major on the minors. We've got a major on the majors. What unifies us is our person and work of Jesus, not open-handed issues. Whenever you begin to see a person transition from being really in zeal and having zeal for God into being a religious person are these things. And these are my tendency, and they're probably most of your tendency. But we have this tendency to drift toward it being all about us, to becoming cynical about what's taking place in our churches and around us, that people aren't doing this or not doing that there's a major lack of joy within those people's lives. Let me show you this. Flip back with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. John chapter 2. John chapter 2. I think this is a beautiful illustration of what we're talking about today when we begin to put up roadblocks for people to get to Jesus. And those roadblocks, again, you can put them up for yourself and you can put them up for other people. So in John chapter 2, Jesus has done, just did the spring break, college student's favorite miracle. He turned water into wine, right? And then he goes into verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple and, and found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out all, uh, excuse me, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So I think I've got a picture of the actual temple mound back there, Megan, um, to help explain this. It's a white kind of diagram if you can see it on our slideshow. Um, but to, to paint a picture here is that you had the, the temple in Jerusalem, right? And so you've got to understand this. It's really hard for us as Gentiles to get this. But to these people, like this is where God lived. Like this is God's house. Inside of what, it's hard to see there, where it says the court of priests, right? Is, is there a small box? There's the holy place, and then there's the holies, or most holy place. All right, inside of the, like the Ark of the Covenant, 
go watch Raiders of the Lost Ark and you can see all about that. So you, you see that when inside of the most holy place, that's where God lived. Like that was his clubhouse. Like you only got to visit it every so often. You had to be very, very special. You had to be like almost perfect to go in there or you would die. Literally, there are some historical things about tying bells to priests as they would be allowed to go in there. And in case that they touched the holies of holies or if they had sinned and God killed them in there and the bells stopped ringing, they could drag them out. All right? So this is like upper crust, super spiritual people were the only people that got to go in there. The holies of holies, a few more people. And then there was like the court of priests. This is where some men and things like that got to go. And, and the women couldn't even go into that part of the sanctuary. Okay? They had their own court. They were never allowed to go into that court that's the court of priests. So women had their own kind of worship space. I'm sure it was covered in pink and flowers, but there you go. So it's, it's right there. Now, look at this outside court. That is the court of the Gentiles. Even in the Old Testament, there were Gentiles who decided to convert to being Jews. So they began to follow the law. Also, all of those ceremonials. So they would become circumcised. They would begin to dress uh, like a Jewish person. And that's where man or woman, that's the only place that the scum of the earth who were converting to Judaism were allowed to be. Now, what is all of this supposed to be? It's supposed to be a place of worship. And Jesus comes into the court of the Gentiles, and it looks like the 400-mile yard sale in there. This is supposed to be a place for the Gentiles to come and to worship Yahweh, the one and only true God. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, they're all having to weave, and there's all these animals and uh, these people selling stuff, and they're jacking up the prices on these sacrificial animals. I mean, crazy stuff. It's, it's become a flea market in a place where people are supposed to be worshiping God. And Jesus gets ticked. He makes a whip, and he beats people to death. Not to death, but scares him to death, and runs them out with the animals, all right? He's more gracious than I am, because I'd want to beat him to death, all right? So he, he, this is what's taking place. He's, what is he saying? Do not set up roadblocks for people who are here to worship me. See, ladies and gentlemen, it, the gospel is offensive enough. The gospel is what should offend. If they're going to be offended, and if you preach the gospel, there are going to be people in this world that are going to be offended. They shouldn't have to be offended because we have a grumpy old man standing outside of the door measuring the length of girls' skirts before they come in. Now, if you're a believer, follower of Jesus, girls, you should be modest. I mean, that, that's a no-brainer. Look in the mirror. Am I showing my stuff? Put on something else. If you're mature and you're a believer, you should get that. A non-Christian that comes in here we should not have that same expectation. They're, they're a non-believer. <laughs> they're doing exactly what non-believers do. But y'all think that's crazy because we don't have that guy. 
But there are people that do. There are places that do. They have these expectations on non-believers. They're putting up roadblocks that the gospel doesn't put up, that Jesus doesn't have these same expectations on these people, but we create this culture. Hey, this is what we do. This is how you dress. Um, I hear it all the time. Man, Jesus gave his all, so the best you can do is give your all, and that means you dress up on Sunday morning. How ridiculous does that sound? The best you have to offer Jesus is a three-piece suit? Come on. It's ridiculous. The gospel doesn't do that. So God transforms us. He uses us. He, he, he gets frustrated with religious activity. God is after something else. Jesus is after something else. The great Martin Luther said this, religion is the default mode of the human heart. My greatest temptation in my walk with God isn't rebelliousness. It's, it's being religious. Wanting you to approve me and wanting in some way, I don't know if I have daddy issues or what, but wanting God in some way to be proud of me more than he is through Jesus. That in some way my works can trump the cross. And for him to finally say, I'm proud of you. Because guys, secretly, if you're a dad, you need to learn this. You should daily be telling your kids that you're proud of them. Because most of them, especially if they're little boys, that's what they want to hear most from their, from their daddy. That they're proud of them. And in some way, that, that can be, confessionally, my tendency. We live in a performance-based culture, don't we? How many of you guys have yearly reviews at your job? If you do good, you get more money, Right? If you take out the trash at home and you do it exactly meticulous way that your wife wants you to do, you get praised. Good job, honey. Right? Come here. Let me give you a hug. You did the dishes. I mean, we live in a performance-based mentality. Even within the church, we celebrate when people seemingly are really good at doing religious stuff. Right? Now, please get me. I'm not saying that there's not a way to live as a believer. There is. What I'm saying, though, is these roadblocks and extra-biblical things that we place on ourselves and place on others, and we make it about ourselves, and we make it about this religious practice instead of making it about the gospel. There's major, major difference. For instance, just hang on with me. I've got a few more minutes. Facebook. I struggle majorly with what people put on Facebook. And as a, a, a tendency as well to bring up all the religion and religiosity and legalism of my upbringing for 19 years. Because though I'm far removed from that, it's, it's still in me. As Martin Luther said, it's my nature, even after understanding grace, to become religious. How many of you guys have ever seen things? I, I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. I've got like four slides. Like this first slide... You've seen this sort of thing on Facebook. Repost if you believe in God, and in two minutes, he will do you a huge favor. Does anybody see that sort of stuff, and you're like, should I? <laughs> Can I like it twice? I mean, <laughs> you're having a really rough day, and all of a sudden, God, God wants you to know, right? You've seen those, and it's stuff like this. And you wrestle. Now, some of y'all are liars, because you're like, no, no, not me. But I wrestle with this. Like, is this a test, God? Right? Go to the next one. Like, it says at the top, it says one like equals, um, what's it say? 
Jesus stops Satan. Like plus share if you love Jesus daily. So you see that, and it flashes up on your screen, you're like, my wife's being really mean to me, I need to stop Satan, right? My kid's acting like an evil spawn of Satan. Stop Satan if I like plus share if you love Jesus. I love Jesus. Do I want to put this on my Facebook page? God, will you be pleased with me if I like this dumb post? All right, another one. Who do you choose? Ignore for Satan, like and share for Jesus. What should I do? I don't like Satan. He's the devil, all right? <laughs> it's like, ignore for I mean, all right, one more. It says, uh, like or share if you would help Jesus up. Really? Now, I did not make these at home. I wasn't like making memes at home, like, ha, ha, this will be. These are all ones that Laura and I found. Like on friends' pages. So if you're in this room and you posted this, I'm talking about you. All right? The Bible does not say, blessed are the dumb. But that's our tendency. Man, we, we see this, like, you walk by Jesus on the cross. No, I wouldn't help him up. <laughs> like, share if you would help him up. Oh, I, I would help you up, Jesus. Why? Because, man, it begins to build up within us this, this religious activity. Oh, man, what should I do? Like, is this a good work? Or, or should I not do this? Or should, what, what's, what's going down here. I, I, I love Jesus. I remember as a small child, elementary school kid in a small, like probably 30 people there. I remember, no joke, like it was yesterday, and I was probably not even in kindergarten yet, and a preacher standing up front, and he says, and he was big, hot, sweaty, ha-ha, said saved a lot, all right, and he looks at it at the congregation, he's like, I want you to ha-ha, raise your hand if you love Jesus. And I remember sitting on the front row, because we were front row Christians, because that's where real Christians sat, not y'all back there. <laughs> Every week, y'all move a little bit forward, all right? And so, I get it, it's the spray zone, all right? So, I remember sitting right there, and that big sweaty preacher wiping his, raise your hand if you love Jesus. And I remember going like this. And the next day, going to my babysitter in tears, going, yesterday at church, the, the preacher said, raise your hand if you love Jesus. And everybody else put their hand way up in the air, and I, I gave him like a flipper. <laughs> Am I going to hell? Man, what does that bring up in us? Religious activity, religious road blocks. There's a big difference in doing something out of duty and doing something out of love. Don't you see that in your marriages and your relationships? Don't your husband and wife, your children, to, like I hate telling my daughter, come give me a hug. You know what I want her to do? Just come give me a hug. I want her to do that naturally because it's just in her. And that's when she sees her daddy, she wants to hug her daddy. I don't have to tell her, hey, you know, come give your daddy a kiss. I just want her to come give me a kiss. Man, with my wife, I, I don't want her to do things out of duty and begrudgingly doing these things. I want her to do it in a response of love. 
we have to begin to wrestle this morning is these things that we're doing for Jesus, this lifestyle that we're living, are they roadblocks? Are they religious activity? Are they duty-driven? Or are they in response to love? You know what the dis- difference between gospel responses and gospel living and religious activity is? The condition of your heart. The condition of your heart. Why did you come this morning? Was it in response of the gospel? Was it in response to what Jesus has done in your life? Was it in response to grace? Was it in response to mercy? Was it in response to that you've been spending time with God all week long? You've been proclaiming the gospel all week long. You've been persecuted at your jobs, made fun of, laughed at because you've been proclaiming the gospel all week long and you just had to come place to to be healed up so that you can be sent back out this afternoon and so you you come here in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done and the grace that has been bestowed upon you and you couldn't help you were about to spontaneously combust to get here this morning because the gospel is so real or did you become because of man this is what you do you're in the south it's religious activity this is what you do your pastor expected you to be here you know? Out of love or out of grace? See, maturity as well that we see here in these places, in this conflict, is that we as believers must be willing to lay down our freedoms that we have in Jesus in order for the community to be united. There are choices that, that we have made for our family that I believe that I'm free to do in Jesus but we've chosen not to do them because of the offense it could possibly cause other people in our congregation or other people in this in wherever all right all 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 of these things we must be willing to lay down our freedoms our rights and that's really hard for us but is this not the picture that we see in the gospel is this not the picture that we see in the person of jesus does this not culminated in the work of Jesus himself, when, when God himself gives up all of his freedom to come and to live. He gives up all of his rights. He gives up the riches and the, the glory of heaven itself. He leaves the right hand of the Father to come to this broken place to love on and to ultimately die for broken people who are his enemies. To, to go from the, the palace to a, a, a barn or a cave set in the side of a mountain to be born in the way that we are all born in that place amongst that dirt and to live here for 33 years. Jesus gave gave up his rights and his freedom in order to bring glory to God and for the benefits of others. That's what Jesus has done for us. And that should be the illustration and the way that we should live as as well. That I'm willing to give up my personal preferences and my rights for God to be glorified and for me to realize, for you to realize that you are not saved by your religious activity, but you are saved by the activity of one. In his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for this opportunity to worship you. We thank you for your grace that you have given to us so freely, Lord. Um, 
Lord, I'm, my performance is terrible, and yet your performance is perfect. And so, Lord, my faith is not in my faith, but my faith is in the one who had faith, and it's faith, and his faith was perfect. His name is Jesus. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be a gospel-centered people in a gospel-centered church that would be more about the person and work of Jesus than we were, would be about getting all the rituals right and all the religious activity right and wrestling over whether we should like Facebook posts or share them or so on and so forth. But, but Lord Jesus, that we would understand that the greatest thing that can be declared about us through the person and work of Jesus is that we are your sons. We are are your daughters. And there is nothing that we can do to make us more your son or daughter.